thank you, Father, that we come to worship you today, a God who is glorious, a Savior who is filled with glory, the Prince of glory, and the wonderful Holy Spirit who opens our eyes that we might see the glory. There is so much, Lord, in this life that causes us to be blind to spiritual realities. And well is it for us to have this time on this Lord's Day, beginning the new week, to pause and think of you. But may every day be a day in which we pause to think of you and find ourselves before you in your presence gazing at your glory. We don't see it like we should. Open our eyes that we might behold the glorious Savior found in every page of Scripture. And then once seeing how great and glorious he is, may our surrender to you be real and deep, consistent, and life-changing. Oh Lord, call us today to something that perhaps we have neglected and that to our own detriment. Cause us to come back to you with a heart broken and crying out with mouths open, praying that you will fill them. We look to you, our shield and our defender. Spirit of God, come upon us for your glory. And all God's people said, amen. He wrote a book or an article entitled God's Lonely Man and So He Was. Thomas Wolfe, a fairly well-known American novelist of the first part of the 20th century, died at the age of 37. He wrote an article on the American Mercury at the beginning of World War II, although it was not necessarily connected with the war, but it was the spirit of the age. This is 1941. And the title of the article was The Anatomy of Loneliness. Wolf said, the whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, peculiar to myself and a few other solitary people, is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. I just thought we'd start the day with a downer. <laughs> but I don't think he's far from right. It is for many people the central fact, inevitable experience of human existence Loneliness, the world is filled with lonely people, right? Remember those haunting lyrics from the 60s written by the Beatles and that song, Eleanor Rigby, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? And there are so many. 
While our population increases, people are feeling isolated, increasingly distant, and totally alone in the midst of billions of people. And that may be you. You're here in a crowd of worshipers, but you feel loneliness. It comes upon you almost like a dark cloud that walks with you wherever you go. We try to rectify this situation by looking for friends, establishing companionship, but we often go about it the wrong way. Came across this article a few years back in the classified ads of a rural New York newspaper. It said this, classified ads in the wanting a relationship section. Farmer, age 38, wishes to meet woman, age 30, who owns a tractor. <laughs> Please include a picture of the tractor. <laughs> it seems to me that uh, he is self-serving in all these attempts to find a friend, and while friendship does give us many rich benefits, we don't go about it by trying to find a friend, we go about it by being a friend. We read in the book of Proverbs, which by the way highlights the subject of friendship with about, I think, 16 times the word is used. Proverbs 19.4 says the rich have many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Yeah, I know why the rich have many friends. They're all opportunists. And we know why the friend or neighbor of the poor person deserts them, because they have nothing to offer. Fair-weathered friends is a phrase we often use. But the first responsibility, the first aspect of friendship is a sweet responsibility, not an opportunity. It's the opportunity to serve and to bless, and in blessing, we are blessed. There is in Proverbs chapter 17, a very familiar verse, 17, 17 of Proverbs. A friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. Now when I be first became a Christian, I didn't quite understand this verse. I had a brother and I said, boy, that's right. He, he just gives me trouble. A brother is born to give you trouble. But it's not exactly, exactly the the heart of the text, it is for hard times, a brother is there. And a friend, a true friend, loves at all times. I like this quote, real friends are those who, when you've made a fool of yourself, don't feel you've done a permanent job. They're friends at all times. Here's another one from Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 24, one who has many friends soon comes to ruin. I thought friendship was a good thing. Well, it is, but if you surround yourself with shallow friends, unreliable friends, and too many friends where you can't maintain a deep relationship, that will be to your ruin. They cannot be counted upon. And friendship 
is not just to get, it's to give. One person said, I have so many friends, I haven't even used them all yet. But there is a friend, the rest of verse 24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18, 24. Who is that friend who sticks closer than a brother? Now just don't run off yet to what might be the obvious application. You have to remember that this is Solomon writing, right? King Solomon. And King Solomon was the son of King David. We read in Proverbs chapter four and verse one, Solomon is writing, listen my sons to to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. So Solomon is probably teaching Rehoboam and some of his other sons. But then he says this, for I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. And then he taught me. And he said to me, take hold of my words with all of your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Don't forget my words nor turn away from them. That's Proverbs 4, Solomon talking about David. So I just wonder how many of the Proverbs come from dad. And maybe this one. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And if it did come from King David... It must have been that David told Solomon, his son, the tales of David's relationship with Jonathan. Because if you want a template of how to have a friendship, a solid, healthy friendship, read about David and Jonathan. If you want a tutorial on bad friendship, read the book of Job. And the three friends who showed up at the beginning of the book and said nothing for a week, and that was the highlight because once they opened the mouth, everything went downhill from there. Oh, but the, the story of David and Jonathan and their rich friendship in the book of 1 Samuel and ending in 2 Samuel, there was loyalty and there was commitment and there was trust. They were two hearts knit together as one. In fact, we read in 2 Samuel, their love for each other was greater than the love that a man would have for a woman. And some have so misinterpreted that text to point to same-sex attraction and had nothing to do with that at all. It's just that they were loved. They loved each other deeply. Love and loyalty and trust and commitment. They made a covenant of kindness with each other. Because Jonathan, son of King Saul, knew that the throne was not coming his way, so he asked David to, to remember him and protect him. And David asked the same of Jonathan while Jonathan was still in power and his dad was king. A covenant of kindness. But there is a friend that sticks closer than even that. And I think we are rightly to assume in Scripture, because all Scripture speaks of Christ, this is a reference to Jesus himself, who called himself, who said to his followers, I call you friends. That's John 15. Think about that. I call you friends. 
If you can think about someone you highly respect who is well-known, if they called you friend, we would probably all know about it. Because even in casual conversation, you'd have to drop their name. Oh, by the way, my friend, um, so-and-so. I can't even think of someone right now that I want to use. But anyhow, the, the idea of someone really popular. I'm a friend of. How about being a friend of Jesus? I say that's not possible. Well, listen a little bit to the text. It says in John 15, and we're going to go through this a little more slowly, but it talks about greater love has no one than this, that a person lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. Actually, let's put the text up there. Um, John 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what is his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from the Father, I have made known to you. We'll come back to verse nine. Actually, I jumped the gun a little bit. But the word friends is used over and over. The idea then, or the question that comes to mind is, is this applicable to us? Is it applicable to the common Christian? Or is this just for the apostles? After all, that's who Jesus is speaking to. And we were reminded in the Old Testament that Abraham was called the friend of God. That's found in Isaiah 41. But it's also mentioned in the New Testament. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness, this is James chapter two, and he was called the friend of God. Yeah, that's okay for apostles, and it's okay for the patriarch Abraham, but what about me? And I also read in James chapter two, or James chapter four, don't be a friend of the world, because if you choose to be a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. So I have a choice to be a friend of God and turn away from the world or love the world and become an enemy of God. And there seems to be held out throughout scripture this idea that when we come to Christ, we've been called into the fellowship of his son, 1 Corinthians 1.9. You have been called to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now what is that? Friendship at its deepest level. So let's go over this text, beginning with John 15, verse nine, as you have on the screen. What, what kind of relationship is this fellowship? What does friendship with Jesus mean? What kind of relationship? Well, the first is that it is a loving relationship. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and remain in his love. It's a loving relationship. That's the first aspect of it, which means there's acceptance and loyalty. And by the way, in all of this relationship, there is a mutual 
responsibility or a role to play, it's reciprocal. It's not just one person. It takes two to dance. It takes two to make a great friendship. And indeed, that is what we find in the text. You'll also notice here in verse 9 that you've got the Father loving Jesus and Jesus loving us, and we are to love one another. The whole concept of love frames this particular section of Scripture from verse 9 all the way down through verse 17. It's mentioned nine different times. And the basis of a true friendship is this idea of love. It's interesting that the Greek word used here is phileo, which speaks of a loving friendship, but was used often of the friends of of the king in the court. So they were, these were the king's cabinet, so to speak. They were his confidants. They were let in on his secrets. They knew what was going on, but they were still subjects to the king. They were friends, they were servants, but more than that, they were counselors and friends. It describes an inner circle. And that's exactly what we have when we become the friend of God, we're into the inner circle. Now, unless you think that uh, that's pretty amazing that God has chosen me or that I am a friend of God, understand that God has chosen us. That's what it will say in the text, not for good that he sees in us, but purely by his grace. Love is at the heart. Branches are told to abide in the first verses that, was read a moment, that were read a moment ago, friends are told to obey. And there's absolutely no difference between the two. Because remaining in Christ means obeying the commands of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Love is at the heart of it all. And then notice verse 11, joy. Jesus says, I've told you this so that my joy might be in you and that your joy would be complete. Imagine having the joy of God in your heart. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And that's what exudes from this relationship when Jesus is your friend. There's a deep-seated contentment and peace. It's a tranquility of heart. It's a shalom from the Old Testament. It's a wellness. And it doesn't get any better than having the joy of the Lord as your strength. How do you get it? Become his friend so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. So many people are looking for something to complete their lives. They're looking for that missing whatever it might be. Uh, Finances, sometimes friendships, a position, a job, health, whatever. They cannot be happy unless they add something more to their lives. And yet the Bible says when you have Christ and his joy is in you, that joy fills you and makes you complete. And that's part of the friendship. Let's go on. This friendship is sacrificial. And here's where we read verse 13. 
for verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. Let's take the first part of that, the sacrifice on the part of Jesus. Remember we said all of this is mutual. We love him because he first loved us, reciprocal. It's his joy in us and our joy becomes complete, reciprocal. And now this idea of sacrifice, he gave his life for us. This is a verse I often use in wedding ceremonies and it is applied to Ephesians chapter five where the husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The greatest example of love is to give your life. And that's what Jesus has done for us. By the way, Jesus not only lays down his life for his friends, he lays down his life for his enemies. According to Romans chapter five. Why you were still enemies and sinners, Christ died and reconciled you to himself. That's the amazing love of God. But I suppose verse 14 is the one thing that seems to be confusing in a loving, joyful friendship. You are my friends if you keep my commandments. Now, it sounds like you've got to keep the commandments to maintain his friendship, but that's not really what it's saying at all. Jesus kept the Father's commandments because that is the evidence of love. True love cannot exist without evidence. And you don't gain the love of Christ by keeping his commandments. You demonstrate that you love Christ by willingly following his word. And his commandments are not grievous. So says 1 John. If the commandments of God are grievous to you, if they are a pain and you don't, you don't know what, you don't know how to avoid them and be a Christian. You wish you could. Well, there are some things that are hard to do because of our flesh, but when God changes your heart, there is a component where you love the law of God and you delight in it, and it is a pleasure to do it. That's what happens with a real believer, so the question is, if you don't love the law of God, how can you say you love God or that you're a friend of God? It's sacrificial. How is it possible for God to command us to love him? Keep in mind that the definition of Christian love is based not primarily on feeling, but on will decision, an act of the will. The evidence of our love is not how we feel, but what we do. Emotions are involved to be sure, but loving God is an act of the will. It's a duty before it becomes a delight. And so our friendship with the Father is flawed. Our friendship with Christ is not perfect, but his friendship to us is, and he invites us in. And when we become his friends, he's a loyal friend and will be there in every situation for you. 
One final thing we might say from this text is that the love of God or the love of Christ and his friendship is intimate. Verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I've learned from the Father I have made known to you. There's this idea of openness and disclosure. Again, it's mutual. I suppose you might categorize friendship on three levels. There is the casual friends, and you have a lot of those, and if that's all you have, that's where the proverb comes in, those with many casual friends, all of that will lead them to ruin. But then you have what we might call comfortable friends. These are friends that you let in on a little closer, and they're more involved in your life, and you rely on them some, and they rely on you, but the last category, I would say, would be close friends. So you go from casual to comfortable and to close. And your openness, which is quite narrow to the casual friend, becomes wide open to the close friend. This is where you share heart with heart. And the Bible tells us here that Jesus shares truth with his friends. I've called you friends because everything I've heard from the Father I've shared to you. He gave it to the apostles. They've given it to us. And we have the secrets of God. We don't have all the secrets of God. We couldn't hold them. Our mind is not infinite. But we have the secrets of God. In the New Testament, they're called mysteries. Unknown for ages. And now made known by the coming of Christ. And in Jesus we have all the knowledge and wisdom of God and the fullness of God in bodily form. And he reveals the mystery. The mystery is Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. But we reveal our heart to him as well. Remember, it's mutual. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit and that your fruit will last. This connects us to the very first part of the chapter, the whole idea of being connected to the vine and bearing fruit and glorifying God. Your fruit will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So the friendship we have with God is dependent upon love and his loyalty to us. It's demonstrated in our obedience to him and the joy that fills our soul by the working of the Holy Spirit and the openness of our prayer life and the deepening of our knowledge of the mysteries of God. And that's the cycle of this wonderful friendship that God has offered us. So that in the midst of a lonely world, you can have the greatest companionship ever to be experienced. Now I'm not saying that it's not good to have human friends. When God created Adam, he said, this is not good. First time God said something wasn't good. It's not good for man to be, he had God. That's all he needs, right? God said, no. He needs human companionship. And develop the greatest relationship designed by God. So beautiful and wonderful. 
and defiled and broken by man. That should be the point of great friendship. But then other close friends, like a David and a Jonathan, like a Paul and Silas, Barnabas, those kind of relationships are so vitally important. At this level of openness, Psalm 25, verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. This is loyal love, this is covenant love, and it's very transparent. I like Proverbs 27, 9, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friends springs from their heartfelt counsel. Jesus underscores the importance of prayer, us unburdening our soul to him, and God opening up his word to us. So just by way of review, friendship with Jesus is loving and it's joyful. It's sacrificial on his part and ours as we obey and surrender to his word. And it is intimate and deep. Oswald Sanders once said, each of us is as close to God as we choose to be. Think about that this afternoon. Each of us is as close to God as we wish to be. Oh, I wish I were closer to God. Do something about it. It is a journey, it's not instantaneous, but he has promised to take you in and to grow you by his grace. And then I need to say that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Luke chapter five, verse 20. We already said he died for his enemies. Luke 5, 20, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of those who were letting down the paralytic, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. He loves sinners. He died for sinners. Now, if you're not a sinner, you're not willing to own your sin, I don't have much to say to you. Jesus came to save the sick. But if you are a sinner, Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And those who embrace Jesus as a friend and walk in a deepening relationship with him find out that friendship with Jesus means fullness of life. Friendship with Jesus means fullness of life. He was a professional football player, went into the NFL in 1952 and had a storied career playing both ways, a tight end and a kicker. And when he left the New York Giants in 1961, he became a broadcaster and soon was the director of a radio station in New York. And then Pat Summerall was asked to do sports on CBS and ultimately Fox and teamed up with John Madden. It became the voice of tennis and golf and football, an amazing commentator, but he had a deep, 
problem and a secret. He was an alcoholic and it was destroying him. One morning in Atlanta, Georgia, he woke up at 3 a.m. vomiting and thought he was going to die. His family had an intervention after telling him time and time to stop drinking. And he was mad, but he went to the Betty Ford Clinic. Usually at the Betty Ford Clinic, it takes 28 days. It took him 33 days. And the reason they said is because when you came here, you were so mad the first five days didn't count. And that helped, but what really helped him is he realized he needed a savior and somehow he had the gospel in his background. He trusted Jesus Christ, gave his heart to Christ, was baptized. He said, when I was baptized, it was me and a bunch of little kids and it was the greatest experience in my life. Started witnessing to everyone. Friends were skeptical. But he said, you need Jesus, and I can't explain it to you until you trust him. And his life radically changed. He stopped drinking. At first, it was a bit of a struggle, but then the desire was gone. And a lot of people don't know that he would sit in the booth on Sunday morning before the game, and he and a friend would take out a hymnal and sing hymns. One of his favorite was, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, the, the grief, what is it? Oh, the grief, oh, the joy we often forfeit. Oh, the needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry Everything to God in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray, speak to our hearts today. For the one who has come here today and has never acknowledged that they are a sinner and never, maybe never saw the glory of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus and the love of Jesus as displayed on the cross, that that sacrifice was for them. May they confess their sins, turn their back on their sins, and embrace Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. But there are many Christians here today who don't have a deepening friendship with Christ. And they're lonely in a lonely world. Oh Lord, I pray, draw them by the power of the cross and the grace of God, the one who has chosen us to make us fruitful and joyful and the one who called us friends. Oh Lord, give us that experience, we pray. In your holy name, amen.